about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Avengers Age of Ultron, released in April 2015, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach announcing his return to filmmaking after announcing his retirement in 2014, Martin Scorsese's cameo in Campus Code, or Jennifer Aniston narrating Unity instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Avengers Age of Ultron when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. Enjoyable, but there's something very second album syndrome about it, and it never quite comes together. Also not keen on how Scarlet Witch is depicted, and would have preferred a more psychotic Ultron. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Avengers Age of Ultron is musician Gareth Irons. Gareth, where can people find you? I'm currently playing the bass for a band called Code Break, and I'm also on a podcast called Retrospecticus, which deals with The Simpsons and modern history. And I'm also reviewing absolutely every episode of The Simpsons, one after the other, because I've just got Disney Plus and we're locked down in a right-wing police state with a virus hanging over our heads. And you can find that at Ace one on Twitter. Okay, so before we go any further, Gareth, what happens in Avengers Age of Ultron? The Avengers fight Hydra for possession of Loki's scepter and encounter a couple of major new characters when all of a sudden Iron Man has a vision, very much with a capital V, of a future where the Avengers die due to his inaction during a cosmic threat. And in his attempts to do better, he does entirely too much. So, Gareth, what did you know about the Avengers and Ultron before you saw this film? Well, not as much as I could have done, really, and in two ways. So, comics-wise, Iron Man was the very first Marvel hero I actually read because he was a backup strip in the UK Transformers comic in the early 80s. So I've always had a tangential interest in the Avengers because Iron Man was largely part of them. As for the rest of them, really only on some uh, sort of Panini reprints from the mid-2000s. So I'm aware of all the characters, but I'm maybe not as up to speed on any of them as I, as I could be. As for the, the movies, I, I had to play catch-up with a lot of these. I fell very much out of love with the concept of attending the cinema after a few disastrous customer service experiences. So I literally didn't go to the cinema for 10 years. So I think I had to watch this and Winter Soldier and The Dark World in a day before going to see Infinity War at very short notice. Um, so it, it's actually been really nice to, to, to watch it again and, and uh, find out what actually happens in it, because it was all a bit of a blur before. Well, just before we go on to my first point that I want to make, it is interesting that you asked me the other day what order the films around this point came in, and you were surprised to hear that this immediately followed Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, there is a reason for that, 
which is it kind of as anyone who's heard the first part of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. episode will know that originally the second series of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was going to tie in with Guardians of the Galaxy but it didn't quite because they took a different kind of decision on how to depict the Kree and how to depict the celestial stuff in general so it didn't quite tie up but well that's possibly the reason but it might just be when the films were ready basically could well be I mean there is a thematic link this introduces the Infinity Stones more concretely to the less cosmic side of the the mcu and obviously guardians of the galaxy brought that in blatantly on the cosmic side well there's a couple of quite important debuts in this but really i've got to get this out of the way first of all my main problem with this film is now there have been a number of different iterations of ultron in the comics over the years i mean we were just mentioning agents of shield there was at one point there was the female ultron who was basically a synthesized human and that's kind of reflected in another character in agents of shield but to me ultron will always be be the one that was around in the late 70s early 80s the sort of secret wars era one it was essentially just i hate you all i want to destroy you all Rah! and i imagined that ultron had like a kind of screechy robot voice and with just the second it was provoked by you know merely seeing the wasp or something it would just let fly with nuclear blasts but in this ultron's kind of like you know one of those philosophical cultured villains and to me that's a missed opportunity because Every adversary in the MCU is like that, essentially, from all of Iron Man's antagonists to Thanos to Ego in the second Guardians of the Galaxy film. Everyone's got the kind of smart-ass, I am cleverer than humanity, therefore I must destroy it attitude. And it would be nice to just have like a psychotic robot on the rampage, I think. I'm right with you. I think he is relatively psychotic, but you're quite right in the, the character design in the comics looks screechy looks like it could have a screeching contest but it's yeah very sort of measured low voiced there's some evil and insanity behind that but i think they've moved to having more as essentially dark iron man in this rather than what he is in the comics in the comics his origin is completely different as well because he's he's made by hank pym the original ant-man but obviously hank pym hasn't appeared in the mcu at this stage so they've got him made by stark and banner instead it's sometimes annoying when film adaptations of things give a different origin to characters i I feel like this one was relatively true to it but kind of yeah you're quite right i would have liked to see more uh indiscriminate violence and um, and shrieking i think we've come to that conclusion the lack of shrieking is the problem there is though there's a lovely callback to ultron's first appearance in the comics the first issue he was featured in he was referred to as the crimson cowl and he was yes. wearing this big red cloak from head to foot like, i only noticed it this time through when he first meets two of our other debutantes so i'm sure we'll talk about it in a second he's got a red scarf over his head and shoulders which i really enjoyed that little point well there's another major diversion from comics continuity in there now it is the same Ultron does create the vision to further his course and the vision kind of turns out to have humanity inside with the Avengers to defeat Ultron but the main difference is in this Ultron uses Jarvis Tony Stark's sort of AI interface controlling building regulating computer program to model the vision's mind patterns which is how come the vision is played by Paul Bettany as well but in the comics when he creates the vision the vision's mind patterns are actually based on somebody who's the real major no-show in the MCU at this point, which is Wonder Man. To me, that, that just reminds me of the fact he's not appeared yet. I mean, there are many other characters that are tied up in, or rather were tied up in rights issues, like the Fantastic Four, Blade, I think the Submariner still is. There's some that they've held back for other reasons, like I suspect 
expect that now that we're getting swords, Spider Woman is going to become part of it. You know, obviously She Hulk would have been overkill with the Hulk as well. But Wonder Man, there's been no reason why he shouldn't be in it. I'm just mystified by it. I mean, even. Adam Warlock kind of briefly appears in one of the Guardians films. Apparently, there were some scenes shot with Nathan Fillion playing him for Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which ended up not being used, so I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's particularly baffling as well. I mean, I'm surprised to hear he was in the Guardians of the Galaxy, even if he was uh, cut out, because to me, he's much more of an Avengers character. I can't think of a more Avengers-related character that hasn't appeared in MCU at this stage. You mentioned She-Hulk there. She'd still be a distant second. Well, Wright's complications were also behind two of the other major debuts, which you alluded to before, which is Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, who, well, Fox tried to argue that they owned the rights to both characters because technically they were mutants and therefore part of the X-Men. But Marvel argued back that they'd always been far more associated with the Avengers, which is true. As far as I'm concerned, I never thought of them as X-Men, despite the fact they are, in the comics, essentially Magneto's children. And I wonder if, because it's not so much of a spoiler to say something happens to Quicksilver at the end of this... Could the rights issue and the fact he had appeared in some of the X-Men films, could that be why they didn't have plans to use him any further? It's possible. It's a shame because I think it was a good character and a good fit. There is a, there's a moment in Avengers history where Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver joined. I think it's where basically all the originals have left. So you get Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, Hawkeye and Captain America at one stage. And I think there is an argument to say that they've been more Avengers related since then. But yeah, did they not start in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? I could have that wrong. Obviously being Magneto's children and all that. Although that wasn't revealed until later. Well, I don't think they quite nailed Scarlet Witch in this film. I mean, later on, I think she became one of the best characters in the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, but there's something a bit too typically Joss Whedon about her in this. She's a bit too, dare I say, drippy and ineffective and is, you know, scared of making the wrong move and so on. And that's got no bearing on the comics character at all. And while, you know, you can applaud and try to do something a bit different, I don't think it quite comes off where it's Quicksilver. I love the way he's kind of like a, sort of like a Generation X, well, he's not really a slacker because he goes really fast, but you know what I mean? He's got that attitude and he keeps calling Hawkeye old man. I think that works really well, but they don't get Wanda really right at this stage, I don't think. As someone who's, it would be fair to say, not a great fan of Hawkeye, Quicksilver's bedeviling of him uh, early on in this film <laughs> greatly endears that character to He's me. He's getting a bad rap in these so far, I must say. Yeah, I, I don't know. And obviously, I don't want to talk too far ahead, but I, I just never bought into his arc at all, including sort of the end of it. But then I don't know if that's because he was a character who, in the comics, I wasn't that arsed on, really. So Quicksilver obviously liked him. He won't be coming back. Scarlet Witch... Um, is good looking very good looking but also I worried about the casting for that when I heard heard the name I thought that's that's not going to work out and do you know what it has it really has a lot of very bad things happened to that character or to the people around that character and the weariness with which she's been playing Scarlet Witch has increased as time's gone on and I, I, I like that there's some character progression ahead for that character that the acting really brings out there's one more introduction in this which I think very few people noticed I mean, they Ooh, really no. have to be kind of deep into Marvel to notice this. But OK, it sounds like you might know. So I'm going to ask you to take a guess who you think I'm referring to. I think you might be referring to Ulysses Claw. No, I was going to come on to Claw, but... <laughs> oh, right. So who have I missed? Well, like I say, hardly anyone will have noticed this. 
the scientist who Tony Stark invites to the party, who says she can't go and then says, will Thor be there? Which is, incidentally, is a neat callback to Agent May's fixation with Thor in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. She's actually, it takes some close listening to determine this, she's Helen Cho, who is the mother of a more recent Marvel character, Amadeus Cho, who's been hinted at a couple of times in a couple of the films, very, very vaguely. He's basically a child genius, well, a teenage genius, who is able to work out how to adopt the abilities and mantles of several incapacitated superheroes. Oh, okay. And so, given that they've had his mother in, and there's at least one other film where they very heavily hint towards his existence, I wonder if an appearance by him could be on the cards. But yeah, Ulysses Claw. Now, what a character, and what a performance from Andy Serkis. Yeah, aside from the outrageous South African accent he's got on for it, I think he does really well with that. I was really confused, though, but I think you'll know why I was confused when I say I only know Claw from Secret Wars. By that stage, he has a sonic gun for an arm and is made of solid sound waves and has the mind of a child. None of which are true of the character at this stage. Although he does get his arm lopped off, doesn't he? So he, he could he could be getting the gun grafted on. There's another film where he sings What is Love by Hathaway, which would point towards some degree of mental disturbance, I would say. But yeah, you're quite right. He's not in it for long but um, absolutely dominates the screen while he's there. to my other big problem apart from the characterization of Ultron which you know is really just me being picky it's the whole fact that the film apart from that bit in the middle where they go to Hawkeye's house which we'll come back to later (laughs) is on one level it's just continually you know it starts with that brilliant battle where they're trying to get Loki's staff back and then it just stays the same more or less throughout it's just one long battle scene and it reminded me of your description of Oh My Soul by Little Richard which (laughs) starts off for about seven seconds sound like the most exciting thing ever to have existed and then it just does the same thing again and again and I think that's applicable here I mean I will say the last battle in the closing scenes it's the closest the films have ever come to looking like actual panels of the Avengers of the sort of classic 70s comic strip but I just became fatigued with it after a while It's it's just relentlessly coming at you with endless action Absolutely. There's no room to breathe apart from, like I say, when they go to Hawkeye's house. I do love that it starts with the mod- what is basically a routine mission by them for the Avengers. It's the sort of shorthand for showing how much more in sync they are than the first film. And that 
points to off-screen adventures that have happened before, which, you know, is a really good sort of way of telling you a lot has happened without having to show you that a lot has happened. So a good shortcut there. The party scene as well that shows them all sort of in various stages of knowing each other. And you can you can sort of imply some some conversations that have gone on behind the scenes. Uh, and also there's some, some agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in there. There's some ancillary members. War Machine and Falcon don't really get a look in in this in this film, but kind of they are in that original party scene. It's great that they, they take these little narrative shortcuts and then it's like straight into the first fight against Ultron. It's really good, really tight up until then. So why is the film so bloody long? By the end of it, I, I just felt like I'd I'd aged terribly. I needed to shave after the film. <laughs> I think I pinpointed the problem. What they've done is they've realised they've never done a proper origin for Black Widow. So they put a Black Widow origin movie in the middle of another movie. Yes, those kind of nightmare scenes that they're given don't really work for me because the tone just isn't right. It's literally just she's recalling how she was trained to be Black Widow. Yeah. And she thinks, oh no, how terrible. They're all a bit like that. You know, Thor ends up at some disco on Asgard or something and Idris Elba's wearing a different costume. I couldn't quite work that one out. And then he flies off, you know, obviously because he thinks he's missing the party. But the interesting one there is, I mean, how predictable is the Captain America one? That he's back at a dance celebrating the end of the war and he's dancing with Peggy. It's like something out of Torchwood. It's yeah. like an idea out of Torchwood. It looks and sounds like something out of Torchwood. But there's one really interesting thing about it, which is there are lots of debate about whether there's an uncredited cameo by Jenna Coleman. Now, there is. There's a close-up of somebody dancing who looks extremely like her, but in just enough off-focus enough to possibly not be. And I found nothing to officially corroborate that, so we don't know, really. The hallucination sequences, I think the, the main problem with them is they're not necessary. Earlier on, you see Tony Stark's hallucination. That's important because it sets up the motivation for some of the events in the movie. And to be fair, some of the events for all of the rest of the Avengers movies. But once you've seen that, you know what Scarlet Witch's kind of hex power does to people's minds. We don't have to see Black Widow's because she covers it all off in a conversation with the Hulk later. We don't have to see Thor's because he could just go, ah, I've had a terrible vision and then fly off and have his vision quest later on, which you do need to keep because that's got the Infinity Stones in. And the Captain America one is, like you say, incredibly predictable. I don't see much of a use for them. Well, going back to something more interesting then, which is a party scene, there are a couple of things that I really like about that. One is that I like the way it's the contrast between the ones who see themselves as friends and colleagues. There's the bit where Thor and Tony Stark are kind of boasting about what their respective significant others have achieved. There's that, and there's also the fact that Rhodey, War Machine, is supposed to be a great friend of theirs, and he tells them a funny story, and they don't laugh at it and question it. Meanwhile, You've got Falcon, who's a newcomer, having a conversation with Captain America in which he's expressing genuine friendship and concern about where he's living and encouraging him to look for somewhere better. I love that contrast. I also loved when they're all drunk and they have a competition track to live Molinir. (laughs) (laughs) See who's worthy of it. And there's also that brilliant bit where Quicksilver thinks being quicker than it, he can catch it and he goes flying. (laughs) But the big thing in it is the cameo by Stan who tries some of Thor's alcohol and is seen babbling saying Excelsior in different ways. Nobody has noticed yet. That's why I say it differently at the end of each of these. <laughs> it's because of that. Nobody 
he spotted it. But I think as party scenes go, it's quite an effective scene. But again, it's still on that loud, blurring, brash level. Just don't get any respite from it. The closest thing that most of the film comes to quiet is Ultron singing, I've got no strings to hold me down. <laughs> Which really, to be honest, that's more indicative of the relationship he had with Hank Pym in the comics, which is much more of a Pinocchio hating Geppetto kind of thing. Than yes. Just, he doesn't like Tony Stark because Tony Stark stands for things that Ultron things don't compute, basically. It's like they didn't consider the change that the origin would have on the characters' motivations and actions quite as much as they should have done. And I, I completely buy that. That's, that's far more the Pym Ultron than the Stark Ultron, I would say. But the other quiet bit now we've been trying to avoid talking about this so far when they go to Hawkeye's house oh god and it's the first meeting with the son that is apparently older than him by the time we get to NK <laughs> which I mean obviously I think Linda Cardellini who plays his wife is superb I mean I loved her in Freaks and Geeks and the number of things she's been in since then the scene itself does nothing wrong with it there's some funny bits it just doesn't belong in the middle of a film that is too long already. It's only saved when Nick Fury turns up. See, he's totally stopped by attracting himself. Try not to bring that to life as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, an appearance by Nick Fury always uh, livens these films up, and it, never is it more needed than after, like you say, you've been pounded into submission by this, this constant pace. And then you're just at bloody Hawkeye's gaff for four hours, granting some much-needed levity to the whole thing there. One thing I really did notice, though, is I didn't notice until I watched the films all again in order, was the real character development of Captain America. You know, starts off, particularly the first Avengers film, was quite uptight, totally unadjusted to the modern world. And in this, he still berates Tony Stark for swearing. But he's becoming a more relaxed and open character. But one thing I really picked up on this time was in quite a few scenes, he's seen riding a motorbike. Is that a nod to the 70s Captain America films in which he had the proto-street hawk motorbike? We can hope so. It's a shame it never started talking to him and we could confirm that. <laughs> no, it was Zardu Hasselfrau who had the magic boat. Sorry, that's another film, isn't it? <laughs> is that night boat the crime-solving boat? <laughs> Even when Steve Rogers is berating Stark for his language he kind of doesn't want to it's like a it's a slip rather than anything else and, and i think that's a really good character moment as well it shows that he's he's realized how he has to be to fit in and he's just having that adjustment trouble and also i think scarlett johansson well black widow's kind of overshadowed in this film a bit and isn't brilliantly served by the script but she still gives it her all a delivery of lines like at long last is lasting a little long boys you know she's perfect the scenes where she's on the motorbike sort of rampaging through the traffic. I don't know quite how they filmed that. Presumably it was green screen and she wasn't actually driving down the freeway, but she looks like she's enjoying it. I think she's incredibly underrated, but never more so than in this, when she's kind of almost waving for attention in the background. Yeah, it doesn't give her much, does it? It's the one thing where I'm maybe being a bit harsh about the hallucination scenes is that, yeah, that that's her meat for this film. Of course, by the end, she's essentially been promoted to co-leader of the Avengers by the various leavings that happen and getting ready to trade the next set but you're quite right they, they've done her dirty in terms of anything to actually act on which well, was almost even more overshadowed because it's recently emerged that Joss Whedon originally planned to have Captain Marvel show up in the middle of it but that was kiboshed <sighs> for a number of reasons but as well as that what I always forget about is she has this kind of romance with Bruce Banner which 
sort of underpins a lot of the plot. Again, watching them all in order, it's interesting that, you know, she has that quiet confidence earlier on that she looks at Steve Rogers, Tony Stark, and the reaction to them is basically, I could have them if I wanted to, and I don't want to. She plays that attitude so well. And then Black Widow falls for the guy who is completely unlike all the others, to the extent that he doesn't notice that she's basically leaning over the bar with virtually with her blouse open, talking to him. And it's quite a sweet romance, but ultimately it's quite doomed as well, because he goes into one of his banner moods and disappears at the end of a film, waiting to reappear in a later film. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely forgotten that as well. And I'd forgotten that when Hulk goes off at the end of this, he essentially goes off into a different film, which I've often wondered whether that's uh, a bit of compensation for this version of the Hulk not actually getting his own film, taking such a big part in a film that you and I may well be discussing in the future, it would seem. Well, yes, we will. And hopefully it'll be a bit easier to discuss than this one because I've found that it's just so relentless and, as you say, long. It's hard to formulate a coherent kind of line of argument about it, which people have probably noticed, to be fair. But speaking of other films, there's the post credit scene in this, which, in about seven seconds, puts across more ominous menace than there ever was in the whole of Age of Ultron, which is... That would be Thanos appearing and taking his gauntlet and saying he'll do it himself. Yeah, and that obviously has huge bearing on what comes later but again you know it was one of those lovely things where I still don't know that most people would really know who Thanos was at that point. I mean pretty much everyone knows who Thanos is now but at that point where people really have known apart from the few who would have seen that and thought uh oh it's going to go into the Infinity Gauntlet comic from the early 90s <laughs> <laughs> which it kind of did and it didn't that's such a solid setup for what comes later and I know people are trying to argue that the post credit scenes kind of go off after the first couple and they just become almost like glorified bits of later films but that is it's just the sheer malevolence but not evil malevolence like just weary sort of almost humorous malevolence that he picks up the gauntlet with and we later find out exactly what he did to get that gauntlet which is not very nice but that's for Infinity War well there's only one thing left for me to ask now Gareth if you had access to a seemingly unstoppable robot gone wrong which is seeking the destruction of humanity what would you use it for? I would tell him that the definition of humanity is the current Tory government and let him loose in Downing Street. I don't think many people would argue with you about that, to be honest. <laughs> Gareth, thank you, and Excelsior. Excelsior. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me, at timworthington.org.